and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. I'll tell you a joke. This is an old joke. I bought it many years ago. <laughs> I don't know what made me think of this. This was in the days when My Fair Lady was playing on Broadway. And, you know, it was impossible to get, the ticket, get tickets to it. But it was a matinee. And here in the center were two women sitting with an empty seat between them. And the one woman said to the other, can you imagine an empty seat at my fair lady? And the other woman said, well, it belonged to my husband. And she said, well, why isn't he here? Well, she said, he died. Well, she said, couldn't you get a friend to, to go with you, you know, to get a ticket to my fair lady? She said, they're all at the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, the committee, for inviting my husband and me to come here. It's, it's a beautiful convention, a beautiful hotel, and a beautiful you are. Uh, my husband and I have a little suite. And last night when we came back from the meeting here, we, we, we came in and we, we started to prepare for bed. And Johnny was looking behind the bed and he said, what do you think this is? And behind the, there's a headboard and there's a big motor behind there. And we studied that thing and, and I said, do you think it's one of those vibrating beds? <laughs> we didn't know and I, I said, do you think we dare to get into it? I, I, I could see us flying out the window with this bed. And well, this morning when Denise came, we, we figured it out. She told us it was a Murphy bed. I've never, I've never seen one. I've seen it on Marx Brothers movies when it slaps up. I said, Johnny, maybe it's the honeymoon suite. I, I don't know. I, I have sort of a dirty mind when it comes, you know, when it comes right down to it. So. I um, I come from Laguna Beach, California. It says Florida on the. I come from California. That's not really where I come from. You can hear that. Uh, and uh, first, I'm going to start with: Are there any new people in Alamon? Uh, in Alamon, we're new much longer than you're new in AA. I don't know why that is. Maybe we're not as sincere or something. I hear in AA out there in California, they say, are there any people under 30 days of sobriety, any newcomers? And then you put up your hand, and then after that, they don't ask you. Well, in Al-Anon, we knew much longer than that. I don't know. For one thing, we usually don't have the law looking for us. So we don't get as serious about the program, maybe, by the way. Uh, but if you're new and you have come in here to find a way to sober up a husband or a wife or someone in your family, I think that's one of the best motivations of all for coming into Al-Anon. It won't work. 
but you're here and you'll find some answers for yourselves, you see, and you'll find love and care and, uh, and friendship and understanding just like you do in AA. And, uh, in, in our meeting, which Lynn attends when he can, when he's in town, we love him there. And, uh, in, in our place, we usually, one of the first things we tell you when you're a newcomer is that, uh, it isn't your fault, you know. And that's very nice to find out, you know. John regularly told me, no wonder you had to drink, you know, being married to me. So it was sort of nice to find out. It wasn't my fault. He drank because he wanted to drink. But then the next thing we tell you is that you're sick. Sicker maybe than the alcoholic. That'll give you a burn, you know. (laughs) I mean, to have to hear that. But I'll tell you, it's all right if you're sick when you come into Al-Anon. It's all right if you come in full of fear and hostility and lost all hope and a broken heart. That's how you should come in, you see. If you came in serene and happy, I'd really worry about you, you know. So that's all right. I told you I'm not from California. I was born long, long ago, far, far away. In, in Lapland, Sweden, about 50 miles north of the Arctic Circle. Can you believe that? And here I am in Florida. And uh, my father was building a railroad up there, and that's how come I was born there. And uh, we had parties at our house. I had a full set of parents and an older sister. And... Uh, we had parties at our house on weekends, and there was singing and drinking and dancing and lots of laughter. And uh, ever since I was real small, I had a great need to shape up the people around me. And uh, if somebody laughed too loud or sang too loud, I'd tell them about it. So I got sent to my room a lot. <laughs> Spent a lot of time in my room. And uh, And my father was... Uh, a lot of fun. He, uh, I think he might have wanted boys the way he, he brought us up. We, uh, he taught us how to ski. That was important up there. Yeah, that was one of the ways you got around. And, uh, he had a big Harley Davidson motorcycle with a sidecar and he'd stick us in that and take us along. And, and those things were fun. But when he had been drinking, I had no use for him. I, uh, I don't know, I always knew when he'd been drinking. I, I was no more than maybe three, four years old. But we had a dog that adored my father, and that dog would run to meet him when he came from work. But on the days when he'd been drinking, that dog would turn tail around 30 feet away, and, and I was the same way, I, just on instinct. When I was 10 years old, we moved to Stockholm, and my father was originally from there. And... Uh, I, I guess he was a periodic drunk. Uh, we're not supposed to name what our <laughs> parents or mates are, but I know that in between drinking hard, he would stop for a period of time, and then he would read. I can remember him going to the library and read every kind of book he could find, and he would uh, also take an interest in me and my sister. And uh, so we were in Stockholm, and now he started to take us around in the city. He was 
he was brought up in that city and and uh, teach us about traveling on the streetcars and buses and how to get around and, and uh, take us to museums and things he wanted us to see. But then when the drinking started again, that all was gone, you know. Then we had no real contact. And I can remember him coming home. My father didn't drive an automobile, and uh, he would come home in a taxi, and he was a huge man, and, and he'd be draped over this little taxi driver, you know, trying to get him in the house. And, and my mother would say, please, Karen, don't say anything. Now and daddy comes in, go to your room or, or go to a friend's house. And my father would come in, and he was really true for the day, you know. He just needed to go to bed. But I couldn't let him do that. If I had to prop him up, I was going to tell him about what his drinking did to me. So, of course, I, I got into a lot of tight corners that way, you know. And uh, But I just couldn't keep my mouth shut. I had to quit school when I was 15 because of his drinking. <laughs> and it took me all the way into Al-Anon and some time in there before I recognized what that was really all about. I, I didn't have to quit school. In fact, I had gained entrance to a, to a, what would you say, a public school. And, uh, and I was, they were very proud that I had gained entrance to this school and they were very happy that I could go there. And, uh, it was all my own idea. I had, uh, discovered movies along the way and I particularly loved American movies. And uh, I didn't understand the language, but I could read subtitles. And uh, I had got some grandiose ideas in there. I wanted to dress like June Allison and Gloria the Haven dress. And I hope some of you know who they were. <laughs> and it's really dating myself. <laughs> and uh, I came home from school one day, and I said, I... Uh, I've got a job, and I've quit school, and I'm not going back. And they knew better than to argue with me. That was how I was. I planned my things, and I did my things. I never recognized that until I came to al but that was how I was. I planned things myself, and I went ahead on them, whether they were good or bad. And uh, so I couldn't make any kind of money to to dress on, you know, so I had to go back to school. But I had a little night job selling chocolates in one of those movie houses. And uh, and that was really the first peace and quiet my family had had for some time because I I was out of the way. I went to school, and then I went into the city and, and worked at that movie house. And uh, because my mother and my sister never reacted to my father's drinking the way I did. They never felt the need to straighten him out on it, you know. So this is what I did then. The summer I was 17, I was working in an office in Stockholm, and one of their southern branch people came out to work for us. And he was absolutely gorgeous. He was 24 years old, and he was uh, very dark, very dark eyes, and very good-looking and beautifully dressed. And he was, I had never met anyone like that. I didn't know anyone like that. And uh, all we women kind of, oh, we whispered about this fellow, you know. We used to straighten our seams when he came around. You, you have to explain to the kids what that means. And, um, 
And uh, all the women wanted to date this man, but he sort of liked me, and we we became friends, and we we went to lunch together and had breaks together, and and uh, the summer went by, and and toward September he he asked me for a date. He said, "What do you do on Saturday night?" And I said, "I go to the Winter Palace and dance." And doesn't that sound great? And it was, you know, that's where they played all the Glenn Miller arrangements and Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman music, and uh, and that's where we had our first date. And uh, we started to go out together. Uh, he came from the south. We have a south in Sweden too, you see. And uh, he came from a, a province that was very close to Denmark. And so I had a little trouble understanding what he said. He uh, in fact, a couple of times I said yes when I should have said no. But, uh, so. Moving right along. <laughs> In a year we were engaged, and a year after that we were married. And you see, the most marvelous part about this man was that he didn't drink. And, you know, I had promised myself up and down that I would never have anything to do with anyone who drank. And I used to say to my father, so here I am. When we had been married a year, Johnny came to me and said, how would you like to go to America? Well, now everything was coming. All my dreams were coming through. You know, here I had this beautiful man who didn't drink. And now I was going to get to go to America and learn to speak English. And when Johnny said we were going to Los Angeles, I knew it. We were going to be in Van Johnson's backyard, you see. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so we came out to California. And uh, and drinking was not a part of our life. We, we were busy becoming Americans. And uh, we photographed each other under every palm tree in Los Angeles. <laughs> and uh, after a year out here, we, we had our first child and a little girl and after three years we should go back to Sweden and show this little girl off and our families wanted to see us again and uh, in those days you got yourself to New York uh, by, by we, we flew to New York and then you went by ship over and uh, and John's relatives in New York said now when you go across on the ship instead of taking Dramamine for seasickness why don't you drink scotch they said. And when they said that, I said, what a wonderful idea. And uh, I can't really explain that, how I could begin to feel that way, because I really did know about heavy drinking. I, I did know what it did to families. We had a woman who regularly came to our house uh, with her two little boys to get out of violence, and I had seen enough in my own home, and I, I knew all those men that built the railroad, they were heavy drinkers, you know, and and also worked hard. But, uh, so I knew a lot about drinking, but that's what I said. And I'll tell you that scotch did everything for me that I hear it does for you people in AA. It, um, it made me pretty and I could dance better and I was cute and funny as hell, I thought. And I just loved it. And we came to Sweden and people were throwing parties for us over there and we just had a ball with it. And uh, we came back to the States again. Johnny uh, had a job with an expense account. So now we really got serious about having fun. And we would invite people out, and, and we would be invited out, and we would be in restaurants and parties. 
and have parties at home, and I just loved it. But it seems when you drink a lot, you get pregnant a lot, because um, pretty soon we had four children. I never quite did figure out what cost it, I guess, so. And, uh, and by this time, we had moved down to Orange County, where we live now, actually, and um, and John, uh, I'd be on the beach with the kids during the week, and then on the weekends we'd party, and we'd get a babysitter, and we'd go off and have fun. And uh, but I started to have second thoughts about this. We, uh, the children, missed us on weekends, and uh, they would cry and. And we started to have some troubles. We could behave ourselves at a party, but on the way home we'd start our fights. And you know all the things that happen when you live a party life. We, there'd be flirtations and accusations and jealousies and all those things started to happen to us. So I thought this thing over and I decided to have a talk with John. And I said, you know, this drinking life is not, it's not good for us. It's not good for us and it's not good for the children. And we're going to give it up. Johnny asked me to run along. You know, he was not interested in my plan at all. So we still went out and we still had parties. But uh, now I couldn't enjoy myself anymore. I had to watch what he was doing. And uh, I took my job seriously. <laughs> I tell you, I, uh, I really kept an eagle eye on him. And that's now how we started to live. We'd uh, have these arguments, and uh, and I that became my main point. Oh, I loved to catch him in lies, you know, which wasn't very hard, you know. And uh, but I, I'd feel so powerful if I could catch him. Like, oh, he's lying, you know. I'd face him with this, and he'd just go, ah, you know, like that. <laughs> Big deal. And uh, we moved to Anaheim at this time. We, we got a bigger house for all these kids. And uh, and the beach people were sort of bohemian, you know, and I like that. But uh, now the, here in Anaheim, these people were more serious folk. They were, went to church, and they were civic-minded, and they were interested in what the children should do and, and so on. So now I wanted us to be that way. And except by this time, John was a daily drinker, <clears throat> and he wasn't really interested in, in these people at all. We'd have on Friday night, they usually had a party, and we'd bring, you know, we were all young. You have to use your imagination. This was a long time ago. We had small children, young children. And we'd all get together with our potlucks, you know, and bring a bottle of, to drink, and everybody would put it up in whosoever kitchen we were in, you know. Everybody except John, he kept his bottle under his chair. You know, that's sort of tacky when you're trying to make a good impression. And then, then he'd misbehave, you know, he'd tell dumb stories and he'd make passes and then I'd have to lecture him on the way home, you know, and then by Saturday morning I wasn't even speaking to him, you know. And so, so Johnny would, he, he wanted to sort of continue this party feeling and uh, he'd get out on the lawn, we were all putting in our gardens, you know, and, and he'd get out there with his tools and his bottle of scotch, you know. Doesn't everybody? And uh, and then he'd wave to to neighbors to come over and have a drink with him, 
you know, and uh, some of the guys would sort of look around and see where their wives were, you know, and they'd go over and have a drink, but they'd leave again. But Johnny stayed. The, the last people who gave up on him were the Watchtower people. They, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, they, they canvassed new neighborhoods, naturally, and, and uh, they d- didn't drink with him, I know that, but they discussed the end of the world, you know. <laughs> and, of course, I didn't leave my post. I had my job to do. I stayed by the kitchen window and watched, you know, and got madder and madder. <laughs> and that's how we did it. Uh, I got sick very soon. And we do get sick, you know, and we should get sick, you know, because it's an impossible situation, you know, to to live with a drunk. It can be done, but it's impossible. And uh, and I I think what happened to me, all my anger and resentment towards my father's drinking sort of went underground when I met John, because here was my ticket out of it, you know. I didn't have to live like that anymore. And here it was happening again, and I couldn't understand. I felt Johnny was doing it personally to me, you know. And... Uh, and we'd fight regularly, you know. We'd send the kids out to play or to a neighbor so we could fight in peace and quiet, I suppose. <laughs> you know, and then we'd go to it. In fact, you know, I, I used to say to John, close the windows and speak Swedish, you know. I'd say, <laughs> <laughs> we'd be yelling, you know. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I got... I, I, I was so angry. I tell you, the only, some days the only way I could function was if I was angry. Then I could get my work done and I could, you know, I could just clean that house till it shone, you know, from sheer anger. And, and then on other days when I really let myself feel and see how sad our life had become, I couldn't move. And so many good things had happened to us. We, we had four beautiful, healthy children. And John's work was being going very well. And, and we had been able to come to America, you know. That was the biggest thing in our life. And here it was all running out in the sand. And once in a while I'd pick on one of my neighbors. I began to pull away from everybody because I didn't want them to know how we really lived, you know. And, uh, but then things would sort of build up in me. And I'd pick on one of the girls in the neighborhood. And I'd begin to tell her some some of it, you know. And then I'd go home, and then I'd start feeling disloyal, and then I'd start thinking, now she knows about us. And then the next thing, I resented her, because now she's probably telling all about us, you know. This was all going on inside of me, and then I'd pull away from her. And I did that to one girl after another in the neighborhood till I had no one I could talk to. And... Uh, and I, I, I got so afraid. I, I was afraid of everything. I, I was afraid to go to the store, and I was afraid to, to go anywhere by myself in the car. And I, I really was in bad shape. And I think even Johnny could see that I was in trouble. And we had one more of our talks. In fact, we regularly, we fought, we had a talk, and we made up and started over. We did that on a regular basis. We did that over and over again. But this time Johnny said, you know, this isn't, I, I can't do this anymore. It isn't worth it to me if my drinking is going to do this to you. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm going to give it up. 
And he said, in three weeks' time, I'll have these jobs finished, and we'll take a little trip. We'll go to Palm Springs and take the kids, and we'll have a wonderful time. And those three weeks were wonderful, you know. We were good friends again, and we started to talk about the things that mattered to us, and the children began to relax around him, and we were going to be all right. On the morning when we should go to Palm Springs, when I woke up, Johnny was drunk. He had started to drink during the night. And, uh, oh, that really threw me. I just couldn't believe he'd do that. And I thought, we shouldn't go. He shouldn't drive, you know. And uh, But we went anyway, and it was a disaster. You know, it was scary to ride with him. He drove much too fast. And we got to Palm Springs, and there we were in two little rooms, and and it was a terrible situation. And uh, I tried to take my life that weekend. I, uh, you see, I had figured it out. There had been a love before me, and uh, I figured it out. Johnny was sad that he hadn't married that other girl, and he couldn't tell me, and that's why he drank, you see. I never talked about this to John. I just figured it out all by myself. <laughs> and, uh, and I remembered some of the things uh, from my own home, how some of the things I had said, I'd said some real hurtful things to my father, and I thought I probably caused him to drink. And I, I, I felt, I truly felt everybody would be better off without me. And so, you know, you get a little punchy, you know, you, you get punchy from, from living like this, from having these deep sadnesses within you, and then, making up and starting over, you know. In fact, it got so I didn't want to make up. I didn't want to be happy. I didn't want to fall down again, you know. And uh, so eventually we got back to Anaheim, where we lived then. And uh, it was soon after that our minister came to us to call on us. And uh, I sure didn't want him to know how we lived, you know. He was the last person I wanted to tell. But he was a kind and thoughtful that I began to tell him how, how my father's drinking had bothered me. And pretty soon I was telling him about John's drinking. And he said to me, well, why don't you come and talk with me for an hour every week? And that will surely help. And then if you can get Johnny to come, he can have another hour. And uh, I knew he wouldn't do that. He was so selfish. But the next day I told John about it, what the minister had said. And Johnny said, oh, of course I'll go. How kind of him. And that surprised me, you know. And here we were now. We were both getting help. And it did help to go and talk to this man because we didn't fight so much anymore. It took some of the pressure off. But it was over a year later that I had been to see the minister one morning when he said to me, yes, I do think John is an alcoholic. Now, I thought of John as an alcoholic for several years already. It was no secret to me, you know. I understood it was the drinking. But when the minister said it, it was sort of more serious. And uh, and he said, if John is an alcoholic, he has three ways to go. He'll either go crazy from it, or he will die from it, or he can get help. Well, I never even heard the last part. And that morning when I walked home from his study, I was finally put against the wall. I finally understood I was never going to be able to fix John. I, uh, I, I knew there was nothing I could do. 
And I even understood that the minister couldn't do it. I had hoped he would, you know, but here it was. It was over a year later, and Johnny was still drinking, even though we went and talked to him, to the minister. But I think I even understood that Johnny couldn't fix it. Because in that year, I had seen Johnny try several times to stop, and he'd go back to it. And I think something happened to me that morning. I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now because I've seen it happen to people who come to Al-Anon with a partner who's still drinking. I gave up. I, I just couldn't think of one more thing. It just finally came clear to me there was nothing I could do. And, um, and you know, if it is like that, if it is that we all have a higher power, maybe we, the members of the family, have to do that. We have to give up. We have to believe that their higher power will come to them someday. And it's almost like we have to get out of the way. At that time, I was called back to Sweden. My father was ill. And as a matter of fact, my sister was ill. I, I just thought of that the other day. She was ill at the same time. And tickets were sent for me and my little boy. We have three girls and a boy. And the minister helped me so I could leave the girls. He said, we'll get a woman to look after them, and, and they'll be all right with their father. And I went to Sweden. And uh, and while I was over there, I I got a little moxie back, and I, I knew, for one thing, I couldn't live with the drinking much longer. It just, I was so angry within myself. I had such violent feelings of anger. And I, I thought, I can't live with it. So I knew I would have to learn to go to work when I got back to the States. This is getting so serious. We're going to lighten up after a bit, but, you know, <laughs> so go straight down. And, uh, and when I came back to, to America again, I, uh, I got a little half-day job. All the kids were in school by this time, and uh, I, I got a little half-day job. And uh, the man I worked for was an insurance agent, and he was very successful, and he was uh, in civic organizations, and he was, uh, he was being groomed for politics, and he was very attractive. He, uh, he would come flying into his uh, office in the morning in his, in his three-piece suit, and he was so spiffy and... And, of course, uh, I wasn't above doing a little knifing when I thought I had some ammunition. So I sort of hold this fellow up to John and say that if he could be like him, we might have something, you know. Well, John has been that man's sponsor for the last 18 years. central office called John to, to make a 12-step call at one of our honor farms, and there he was, and Johnny said, there is some justice after all. <laughs> so, and John used to drive me to work. We were still a one-car family then, and uh, he'd drive me to work in the morning, and then we'd try to say a few civil words to each other, you know, and by the time he picked me up in the afternoon, he came straight from the bar, and he was drunk. And we used to stop at the liquor store on the way home. <clears throat> and uh, and it was in the parking lot there one day. Johnny said to me, you see that guy over there with the brown paper bag? And I said, yes. He said, he is an alcoholic. I said, how do you know that? He said, every day when I'm here, he's here. LAUGHTER 
<laughs> anyway, we not much was going on at our house, <laughs> and uh, we and I said we weren't fighting much anymore, and we weren't we weren't saying much to each other. In fact, I made it a point never to look at him. I didn't want to look at his eyes. I I didn't want to be near him, you know. And that was hard. It was a very cold climate, you know. And here we were young people. <laughs> I was 34 when Johnny came to AA, so you can imagine. And uh, and uh, young children, but this was how the climate was in our house. Um, Car- we had one more big Donnybrook. Uh, Carolyn, was the oldest girl, was 13, and she was... Uh, in junior high and there was going to be an open house at school and Johnny always insisted on going to the children's functions you know he he always wanted to come along I think he thought he couldn't be as bad as I said he was if he went to these things and of course he was a pain to have along you know you can imagine I I know some of you have had a drunk to PTA it's you know uh, he'd be weaving you know and you could smell the fumes across the room and I was always so afraid he was going to put his hand on one of the teachers or, you know, you just never knew. Tell some raunchy joke or something. So here it was. It was Carolyn's open house. And uh, and Johnny said, okay, let's go. I'm ready. And I said, oh, Johnny, you look so tired. Why don't you stay home? Well, of course, then he had to go when he heard I didn't want him to. And uh, But then Carolyn spoke up. And uh, our children had not participated in our quarrels. They never said anything to their father. But here Carolyn said, I don't want you to come to my school. You're a drunk and you always embarrass me. And Johnny slapped her across the face. And that had never happened in our house. And uh, and I tell you, it all set us back. We, we, we really, oh, that was a terrible thing to happen. And... Uh, and to me, it just, I know what it did to me. I, I reverted right back to when I was her age. And you know, it's something about a teenager. You almost have to speak up when things get too, too way out. You know, because uh, on your honor, you have to say something. You are beginning to form whatever personality you're going to have. And, uh, and I knew this was my first teenager. I had three more coming along. And I thought about this for a few days, and then I, I, I told John, no more. Either you have to go down and try that Alcoholics Anonymous that the minister had talked to us about, or you'll have to move out. And Johnny had been out before. Well, I had no Al-Anon. I didn't know anything about don't make threats you don't intend to carry out. And we just sort of continued. Nothing really happened. And then one night Johnny came home and he said, I'm not drinking anymore. I said, you're not? No, he said, I've been going to Alcoholics Anonymous and I don't think I have to drink again. And, you know, after all this time when I had said, if you just quit drinking, you know, everything would be fine. When he finally tells me this, I didn't know what to say. I had absolutely no feeling. I, nothing happened to me. And, uh, and now every day when he came to pick me up at work, he would be telling me about Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was sober when he came to pick me up at work. And he said, now this is what they say in Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is what they tell me. 
Then he began to talk about Charlie. And he said, now, this is this Charlie, he said. This is what Charlie says. And Charlie told me this today. And, and, and Charlie says this. And I said, well, bring him home. I wanted to meet him. I wanted to see what he had that I didn't have. I had said, you know, I had said some of those things too, you know. And, uh, So one evening after the meeting, here they came, you know, and here was Charlie, and he was a tall, tan man, and uh, and he was sober. I could see that, you know, and uh, so now we had sobriety in our house, and it was wonderful. I was up on that pink cloud for a whole month, I think, you know, until, <laughs> you know, every every night after dinner, or sometimes he'd have dinner with us, but every night after dinner, they'd get up and say, okay, we're going to the meeting, you know. And, you know, that's also the same time in a, in a household with four kids, you know, or any kids, that uh, that's when it's nobody's turn to do the dishes, you know, you know, that routine. In fact, we remember that little John, who was six at the time, the girl said, well, Johnny should also take his turn to do the dishes. So, okay, he was going to do it. So Carolyn says, okay, Johnny, you do it tonight. And Johnny said, oh, I've got cramps. <laughs> he couldn't understand why we were laughing at him. <laughs> anyway. So this is, and right in the middle of that, when nobody can find their schoolwork and everybody's yelling about something, that's when they got up and said, bye, see you at the meeting. We'll see you after the meeting. We'll be home at 11, you know. And I started to think, it's still his show. I'm still stuck here at home with the kids, you know, and he's going out every night. And I said to Johnny, is it really necessary to go to a meeting every night? He said, I'll check. Yeah, it was necessary. And uh, but then they started to invite me to come along and to open meetings. And uh, now I'll have to tell you about the Ilano Club in Anaheim. Now it was in a district I'd never even been in. You know, it was next door to a car wash, and the weeds were that high outside. And there wasn't a chair in the place, but there were 35 old sofas with sleazy bedspreads on them. And I can't even describe the smoke. Some of you old-timers remember that smoke. It was like a London fog in there, you know. And, of course, over the years, the sloshier John got, the more proper I got. You know how you sort of overcompensate. So here comes Miss Pris into this club, you know. Well, I tell you, that was my first gift from Alcoholics Anonymous because I just loved that place. I felt so safe in there and so at home and so full of hope in there. I just loved that place. And, uh, and I loved the people that were there and I could see they had been heavy drinkers and I could see they were sober and I was so impressed with that. And you know, at that funky club, all the big speakers in AA would come down there and talk, you know. That's where I heard Chuck C. the first time, and Norm Alpey, and, and uh, what's the man's name now? I can't remember him. He wrote one of the brochures in your, or one of the pamphlets. And, 
Alan McGuinness came, and there was a beautiful AA lady. Her name was Marion Forbes, and she came sweeping into that place in a white cashmere coat and a big hat, and she was so spiritual, and I was like that in the room. <laughs> and, uh, and oh, I just loved it, and I loved to hear these speakers, and I, I, I just loved that place. And, uh, and Johnny had bought the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, right away, and I read it right away because now I knew I could better help him with his program if I worked And and I love to hear the people in AA pitch. You know, they they called it that. I don't know if they do that now. And uh, of course, I didn't believe anything they said. You know, <laughs> my God, they stood up there and said, talked about how sensitive they were. I thought, oh, that's rich. You know. <laughs> God. And you know, I thought of this just the other day. I had another feeling. And I have to share this with you because it was so, I was so pleased. I was so happy to be in there. But I also got sort of angry within myself because at the time, my sister was dying from cancer. And when they talked about it, they, they said it was a disease. And I, I thought, oh, you can't call it that, you know. Oh, how can you say that? I mean, she has a disease. Think if I could take these 12 steps to her and say, if you will live by this, you will be well again. And and I felt it, was, it wasn't right that you could call it a disease. You know, these feelings were going on within me. And she died a few years later. But anyway, most of the time I was so happy to be there, and, and I, I loved it. And uh, by this time, Johnny had, uh, and I read that big book, you know, and I loved it. I, I, I thought, oh, it's so simply written. It's like an arrow into your heart, you know. And I, oh, I was so glad that we were in this thing, you know, and that Johnny could get this thing. And uh, by this time, Johnny had asked me to come home again and be with the kids. And I threw that job over just like that. I loved to be home. And uh, Johnny has always been able to have part of his office at home, so he was there a lot. And Charlie didn't seem to have anywhere to go either, so he was there a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, but I didn't care, you know. I figured, well, they, they, that that'll be all right. They're going to work this beautiful spiritual program, you know, and that's okay. And uh, except I could never hear them talk about it. They were out in the garage a lot, and for a while that worried me a little, but I oh, he couldn't do that because I knew where Johnny used to stash his supply, you know, out there. But but I, I really believed they wouldn't do that. But uh, I'd make myself an errand out in the garage, you know. And, well, they told a lot of funny stories, and they laughed a lot, and they discussed Charlie's automobile. That was all I could hear. And I thought, I started to look this Charlie. He is a... He is a sweet man, but I might have to pick another sponsor for John. <laughs> oh, I was so busy. <laughs> but then I figured it out. Charlie didn't know what Johnny had put me through. You know, he just thought John was some happy drunk, and now he was sober, and that was all there was to it. So I'll tell you what I did. One Sunday morning, I got in the car. And I drove over to Charlie and Virginia's house, and I told them everything, everything, Palm Springs, everything. And they didn't say very much. 
I remember they looked at their shoes a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and it was after that that Charlie began to talk to me about some women he knew. He said, they're the sweetest girls, and I know you love them. And they meet in the back room at the club. <laughs> Guess what? That was how I came to Al-Anon. That was where the Al-Anon meeting was. I had no idea it was there even. And uh, so now I was in Al-Anon. And I, I understood, and they told me, that we work the same 12 steps that the alcoholics do. And, um, and we don't talk about the alcoholic in the meetings. They said, I had a little trouble with that. But um, <laughs> they, uh, they said, we, we pick someone after the meeting and talk to on a one-to-one basis. And, uh, well, I tell you, I read all the literature and the, what we had in those days and the books. And I wanted to become an Al-Anon, you know. And... Uh, and I must say, I hear UAAs come in here and talk about how difficult it is to start working these 12 steps after you've hit bottom. Well, you ought to try it coming in perfect. It is hard. <laughs> what are you going to do when there's nothing wrong with you? <laughs> But I tried, <laughs> and uh, I became just an adorable Al-Anon, <laughs> except it never lasted all the way home, you know. <laughs> I had a lot of trouble letting go of the past, you know. I'd, I'd try to work this thing, and I could for a few hours, and then I'd remember something, you know. What about her, you know? And then I'd have to take that off with him, you know, and, and that's how we did it. And uh, I tell you how it really was with me, because John, something had happened to John, you see. And uh, we'd come to the come to the Ilano Club, and there they would be all around him, you know. Hello, John. Oh, how long do you have now? Oh, don't you look wonderful? Oh, hi, Karen. <laughs> I tell you how I felt. I was so glad that he was sober. But I had not counted on that he was going to be happy. It just burned me up. You know. It was just more than I could take. I thought, after all the stuff, and now he's going to sail around here like Jesus Christ. You know, and... Uh, uh, So I'd remember something else to bring up to him, <laughs> and that's how we did it. I had one thing. Oh, I remember one time, poor Charlie, he was really getting worried because I think he was worried about his baby. And uh, he said to me one time, you know, he said, we have established that Johnny is a drunk. Now, what the hell is the matter with you? <laughs> oh, they were so mean to me. And. Uh, <laughs> I had one thing that had somewhat worked during the drinking and that, that I used to do. And that was when um, I used to hold up to John how he was hurting the kids by not teaching them things and not taking them anywhere. And I could make him stay off the booze maybe on a Sunday to, to swim with them or teach them riding or something that he, all the things he knew about. And uh, I'd watch him, and he'd be out there sweating and shaking, and I'd think, oh, serves him right, you know. 
<laughs> compassionate me. And uh, But I was still doing this. Of course, now I couldn't hold up the drinking anymore. But, you know, when you have a bunch of kids, they fight about something and, and they'd be crying. And I'd say, yes, John, after all, you're an alcoholic and all that drinking must have damaged them. You know, this is how I would do it. And Johnny wouldn't defend himself anymore. He'd just say, yes, Karen, I'm so sorry, and I'm trying to do better, you know. And I did this thing over and over again. And uh, and I talked to my sponsor about it. I said, I, you know, I, I can't do this anymore, you know, because somehow within me, I, I felt if, if Johnny couldn't, if we couldn't be live in peace together, if it came down to a choice, he was, he would choose sobriety and AA over me, you know. I, he never said it, but it was just this feeling and I told her I'll lose him. And, and Myrna said to me, well Karen, she said, you have to forgive him. You have to let go of the past. She said, nobody can fix the past. You can't fix it. Johnny can't fix it. You know, the only way you can have a better past is to have a better present. And she said, you have to forgive him, and you have to let go of the past. And she said, I think it's time you take your inventory. And she sort of stressed your inventory. (laughs) And she said, it's time you take the fourth step. And I was always willing, you know, I told, did everything I was told. And I read the long form of the fourth step in, in AA 12 and 12, and I read the short form. And my whole reaction to the fourth step was, what did I ever do? I stayed home and took care of the kids. And I told that to Myrna, and that was my fifth step, you know. <laughs> you know? And there I was. And uh, I had just done this thing again, you know. And each time I, I pushed this thing about him being an alcoholic, I... I felt smaller and smaller inside, you know. I knew what I was doing, and I couldn't stop it. And I drove to the meeting, and I came in to my Alana meeting, and I, I felt so separated from everyone, so isolated, and I thought, I don't even have a right to be in Alana. They think I'm doing so well, but I'm not the same way at home as I am in the meetings. And, you know, something happened to me, and something came back to me, that had happened five years before sobriety. Johnny had some job to take care of in San Diego, and he said, you want to come along? And I said, I sure do. And for some reason, we took Katrina with us, and she was three years old at the time. And uh, and we took off. Well, I had some accusations to make to John that morning. I'd overheard a little, and I'd figured the rest of it out by myself, and I was really going to give it to him. You know, and I tell you, I screamed and I swore and I cried in that car all the way to San Diego. And Johnny tried to calm me down and little Katrina begged me to stop and there was no stopping me. I was just insane with jealousy and rage. And we got to San Diego and Johnny took care of his uh, work and we drove home and I did the same thing all the way home. I was just crazy. And when we got back to the house, my mother was there with the other kid. And I hopped, I hopped out of that car and I said, hi, how is everybody? And that, I had never once thought about this morning, this episode, 
in all those years until that time in the meeting. It had never bothered me. And you can imagine what a frightening experience that would have been for a little girl. And, uh, and then other things began to come back to me. That time we should go to Palm Springs and Johnny was drunk. And I thought he shouldn't drive. We shouldn't go. But then a cool thought in the back of my head said, oh yes, we'll go. And if something happens, maybe that'll teach him, you know. Now, you know, I was the children's champion. I was the sane and sober one, but that's what I did. And another time, I had taken my girls shopping on a Saturday, and we left the baby at home. And uh, we went shopping, and we had lunch. And on the way home in the car, I thought, oh, my God, I hope the baby is all right. And then I thought, well, if he isn't, you know. And we got home, and Johnny was passed out in the lawn swing, and the baby was sitting on the steps of the pool playing. And I was in my glory that afternoon. You know, I blamed that whole thing on Johnny. And you know, by this time, Johnny, it could happen again if I would let it happen. And Johnny knew that because by this time he, he had no control over his drinking. And he, Johnny was a daily drinker and he was a morning drinker and I knew that, you know. And that's some of the stuff I had done. And, uh, and some of the stuff from home. I used to, my mother and my sister were two gentle, sweet women, you know. And, uh, and I used to make life impossible for them. I used to work on my mother that she must divorce my father because that's what I wanted, you know. And she finally had to beg me to stop, you know. And uh, I made her leave him home when we should go on vacation. I, I tell you, I was a holy terror with my bad temper. And, uh, and this I finally saw. And I knew I couldn't pass myself off as a victim any longer. You know, this was my stuff. And, uh, and I also knew that it wasn't important for me to forgive John. John, but whoever should forgive John had forgiven him. I could see that because he was changing. He was a different man. Now I needed forgiveness myself. And uh, that's how I came through that. And then if you aren't careful, you look at this and you wake up in the morning and you sort of can see yourself, you know. And you, you get to, so you run around with this thing pressed to your bosom, you know, and uh, until that becomes an indulgence. And then Elsa Chamberlain helped me with it. She said, but what do you think we have the sixth step for? Now you have become ready to ask God to help you to change. And uh, all this happened a long time ago. Am I running? I just have five more minutes, okay? All the girls are married now, and two of them have children. Katrina is in AA, has eight years of sobriety. <laughs> Little Johnny used to do drugs and pot in high school, but he gave that up about ten years ago. And uh, he comes to dinner once in a while with his little cooler with two cans of beer, so maybe he's working on his story, I don't know. <laughs> it's going to take a long time with two bottles of beer. But anyway, and uh, he's not married. He lives with a girl. I was a little miffed about that. I, uh, I, I like things proper, but uh, 
then with things being the way they are today, I'm glad it's a girl, you know. So, <laughs> so you know, that's called changing your attitude. <laughs> so, but, but if there aren't any shoppers for Al-Anon, I want to assure you this is a very powerful program. Don't sell it short. We had a guy in Laguna one time that called us Al-Anons the pastel ladies. Well, I just wanted to throttle him, you know. I, I wanted to say to him, you couldn't take for a month, but we live with it for years, so we're not, you know, we're tough. You have to be. But uh, I want to tell you about the power of Al-Anon. I, I was in my first year of Al-Anon, and someone asked me to make a 12-step call on a woman that lived in my neighborhood. I didn't know her. She was a few streets over. And uh, I came to her door and knocked, and she opened it a little bit, and I said, I'm from Al-Anon, and she let me in. But all her drapes were drawn. Uh, it was very dim in there, and she spoke only in whispers. And she was married to a very powerful commercial builder, uh, an Irishman, and he was gone for the weekend. That's how she dared to call Alana. And she was so fearful, you know. And of course, nothing much had happened to me yet, you know. I couldn't really share anything, but I had sense enough to ask her if she wanted to go to an Alana meeting. And we went that night. And she heard something in that meeting, and she began to come to Alana with me. Well, of course, he came back, and he would be out on the front porch when I came to pick her up, and uh, he'd be glaring at me, and I tried to make myself as small as I could in the car. And, uh, and of course, we got Johnny involved in this to make a 12-step call on him, and which he did, and he invited Johnny to come back, and he'd be glad to kill him, he said, you know. This is how he was. He, he showed Johnny his back. He'd had many back operations, and he was actually on booze and morphine. Well, we kept going to Al-Anon, and uh, I remember she had a long green Buick that she hadn't touched for years. She was so fearful, but she began to drive again, and she enrolled in business school. Well, of course, we were, you know, I was interfering in his marriage. I was ruining his life, you know, and... Uh, so one night when I came to get her, he was out there, and he was in a rage, you know. He was screaming at her, if you get in that car with that silly woman, you needn't come back, you know. I'll have the locks changed, I've closed all the accounts, you'll be on the street, you know. And uh, on and on and on. And I sat in the car, and I, I thought, yeah, go back in with him. This was a dumb idea from the beginning, you know. I was so scared of him. And uh, she just stood there. And then when he drew his breath, she said, I'm sorry, but I, I'm going to my meeting, you know. And she walked right past him. And I mean, this, you know. And, uh, well, the months went by, and it was October, and time for Southern California Convention. And it was being held in Anaheim that year. And, uh, and okay, okay, he gave in. He said, I'll go to one meeting. And then I don't want to hear a word about this anymore, he said. One meeting. Thank you, he said, you know. And uh, so so we took him to Sunday morning meeting, you know. And uh, and there we stood. And, you know, it will be like this here. You know, that lobby was just vibrating with love and gratitude. And you know how you are on Sunday morning by the time the convention is finishing. And... Uh, 
and he was so hostile, you know, and people would make a big turn around us because you could feel it coming out of him, you know. He he, he didn't want to be there. He wanted to run, and, you know, it was just a bad scene. But he did go in with us. And uh, Chuck C. was speaking that morning. And, you know, ten minutes into Chuck's talk, we saw it happen to this man. I, Johnny nudged me, and, and I, I can't tell you what. It was just like something fell off of him. It was, it was a transformation right in front of our eyes. And he, he reached over and took his wife's hand, you know. And this is what I want to say. This woman, she had come to those Al-Anon meetings, and she had found her inner strength, and that's truly what you find in Al-Anon, you know, like you do in AA. And, uh, and she was able to change the climate in, or God changed the climate in her home and make him ready to, to hear this message that was given that Sunday morning. And uh, he died 10 years ago, and he had 18 years of sobriety, and that couple helped so many people, you know. And that's what we get to witness and be a part of in Alana, you know. So I'm so grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous and to Alana and to all of you, and thank you so much.